Welcome to Edge of Sports, the podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we are on the road traveling to the offices of the NFL Players Association to speak with NFLPA Executive Director Demora Smith. We did it to talk concussions, defending Greg Hardy, organizing college athletes, and a hell of a lot more. We also talked to Orlando Magic assistant coach Laurent Prophet about the legacy of his former teammate, legend, and legendary asshole Kobe Bryant. And we have the Just Stand Up Award. But first, let's jump right in with D. Smith. This movie, Concussion, is about to hit the theaters. Uh, I saw the preview for it in New York over the weekend, Packed House. And I yep. got to tell you, the place went nuts. I mean, it's, really? it's, it's, it's a movie that I think is going to do extremely well. I mean, the way it's filmed, the way it's done. Mm-hmm. When I was a boy, heaven was here. And America was here. You could be anything, you could do anything. I am the wrong person to have discovered this. If you don't speak for them, who will? It's it really great actors. Yeah, Will yeah. Smith, I mean for goodness sakes. Alec Baldwin. Yeah. yeah. Well. I mean, <laughs> Albert Brooks. I mean, we could go through the cast. I'm a big fan. Of I some see of you guys. and raise you, Albert Brooks. First of all, just just real quick about like I just like I, I know you're not a Hollywood critic, but Will Smith, you know, the, one of the biggest movie stars we have is cast as the protagonist, and Luke Wilson, the party boy <laughs> from old school, is cast as Roger Goodell. Just any comments on the casting? Uh, <laughs> no, I think the only thing I cared about was one to make sure that uh, hopefully I was not in the movie. <laughs> There was a uh, the players have indicated a number of people that they would love to see play me in the movie. All of them are um, <clears throat> height challenged, as we would say. So I'm just happy that I'm in no way, shape, or form there. Do people want Kevin Hart to play you. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I had one player say Kevin Hart was too tall to play me. So yeah, yeah. Welcome, welcome to the greatest job on earth. Still, yeah. still living the dream. We'll have a lot more with D. Smith from the NFLPA headquarters in a bit. But first, let's hear from Laron Prophet about his teammate, arguably the most polarizing athlete of this generation, Kobe Bean Bryant. So, Laron, just straight up, right off the bat, if I said word association, Kobe Bryant, what are the first things that come to mind? Killer. You know, I think the first thing that comes to mind is this killer, insane work ethic. Just a guy who, to me, I would say mastered his craft. From the way he approached the game, I don't know after Mike was if there was a more feared player in the NBA. Uh, how does it make you feel now? Year 20, he's obviously uh, struggling out there. Four for 20, five for 21. It's a rough last year on a team that you know has a lot of young parts. Um, what, what's your reaction to year number 20 for Kobe? I mean, obviously, I, I don't like to see him struggle like this. I don't like to see him play like this. This is not the guy that we saw for so long. But the the reality is the greatest strength of Kobe Bryant is also his greatest weakness, and that's his belief in himself, his belief that he will turn it on, that he will eventually figure it out, that at some point he will find a switch that enables him to go into one of those zones that very few people in their careers ever sees. And unfortunately, to this point in the season, he hasn't been able to figure it out. And it's just been tough for us as people who watch him for so long to see him struggle like this. Uh, you called him killer. One man's killer is another man's asshole. Uh, you've probably heard that description of him before. So as someone who played with him, 
Is that well-earned? And if so, does one have to be a little bit of an asshole to achieve the heights he achieved? I don't think there's any doubt he would tell you that he's been an asshole. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, he's never he's never shied away from that. He's never shied away from the fact that he's not here to make friends, that he was never really concerned with people's perception of him, that he was never concerned with how the outside world viewed him, that ultimately for him what he was judging himself on was his ability to win championships. So I think for him, you know, his goal was can I win as many championships as possible and however – people view me or perceive me on the way to doing that, he can live with that. Now, the unfortunate part is sometimes in doing that, you do alienate yourself. And I don't know if there's ever been a player who's been as loved and as hated as Kobe Bryant has been, but I think that's something that he felt he could live with. So, And to be both, I think it just comes with the church. I think whenever you're really, really, really good at something, there's a part of you that has an, an arrogance and a stubbornness that sometimes will be viewed in that manner. Hmm. You've got a couple of terrific, terrific young guards on this Orlando Magic team. What part of right. Kobe's game, uh, if you could wave a magic wand, would you most have them emulate? His work ethic. He often said a lot of guys tried to mimic Michael Jordan's game. He tried to mimic his work ethic. That was the difference. So part of his legacy, of course, not playing with Shaq, not wanting to play with Shaq after winning three titles. Do you think that is a fair knock when we look at his legacy? I think both of those guys have admitted that, you know, looking back, they would have handled things differently. They were young. They were two of the best players in the world, both strong-willed, both thought they could win titles doing it their way. They won three together. They broke apart. Each one has won a title or more on his own. So I think, you know, they would definitely do things differently. But I think it's just when you're young, sometimes you look at the world differently. And they were both young and both felt, you know, that I didn't need the other guy to win. But the reality is together they were a much stronger force than apart, as evidenced by the fact they won three together and three total apart. So I think Shaq, his personality was so different from Kobe's. That was probably the main crux of the issue is just that Shaq was a fun-loving, carefree guy. And Kobe's always saw basketball as almost like an algebra class that had to pass with an A. You had to study and know your craft and dedicate yourself to it. So I think those two personalities were just very difficult to coexist as each one grew into you know to being who they were as men. But ultimately, they did give us three titles and a whole lot of news stories that we got to see and laugh at and, and poke fun at. Pantheon rank. Talk to us. Where is Kobe? I would say universally top 10. You know, in my mind, I would say top five, but I would say universally people would have him in their top 10. His name is Laurent Prophet. Laurent, thanks so much for joining us. Good luck on the NBA grind. Thanks, man. I appreciate having me on. That was Laurent Prophet, and now we return with D. Smith, uh, talking to him in the inner sanctum of the NFLPA offices in Washington, D.C. I know you've been talking about it, and I know people are talking about it, but, I mean, Case Keenum. Right. What, what happened? I mean, given all of the fail-safes that we're told now exist, right. how did he make his way back onto that field? Yeah, I think the answer right now is we don't know what happened. I mean, I, we, we have, or I have, a lot of ideas about what I think happened, um, but the investigation into what exactly happened is is ongoing. And the reason why the investigation 
is so important is picking up on what you said. We've developed, you know, through collective bargaining, hard fought collective bargaining, a number of fail safes that should make that scenario impossible to occur. So when I see the video of what happened, my first question is first, you know, obviously is the is the player okay? Second, it's how did this blow through so many gates um, that have been painstakingly created to make sure that that couldn't happen? So when uh, there's a call down from the ATC spotter uh, that we insisted be there to, to manage you know, what happens to a, a potentially injured player, and you see a club official walk out onto the field ostensibly to engage the player uh, and, and render aid. Well, first, you know, obviously that, that club official leaves the field without the player. So that's the first level of, okay, what, what went wrong? Um, second, you're supposed to have team doctors on the sideline who are paying attention to the game uh, where they can at least make an assessment about an injured player in order to engage that player in, in medical care. Obviously, that that did not happen. If the team doctor is does not have his eyes on the field, he is supposed to designate another medical professional to be watching the field if he's busy engaging another player with health care. Um, there's referees that are now empowered or officials now who are empowered to usher a potentially injured player off the field. If any of those people miss what happened, you now are allowed to use the sideline replay that officials use in order to determine whether a play occurred or didn't occur. Uh, medical professionals right now are, are allowed to use that to see what happens. Do refs get concussion training to they identify do. signs? They okay. do. So what, when, the reason why I'm interested in the outcome of the investigation, even more so to what's going to happen if we find out that club uh, personnel failed, uh, failed the player, I want to know how so many of those fail safes could have broken down. And who gets held accountable? Because I've heard several players say this. They say, like, if hypothetically Cam Chancellor get, hits somebody in the head over the middle with his helmet, then it's Cam Chancellor who gets fined for endangering the safety Absolutely. of a player. It's Cam Chancellor who gets suspended. It's Cam Chancellor who's dragged out in front of the media as a symbol of everything that's wrong. Uh, but who gets held accountable when the failure is done on a systemic league level? Yeah, I think it depends on the results of the investigation. I mean, for example, um, if if hypothetically, if a uh, they forgot to designate somebody to watch the field, well, I would say the person who needs to be punished is the person who should have made that 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 designation to watch the field. If um, the person who came out on the field uh, improperly left the field without the player in tow, it, it should mm -hmm. be that person. I mean, look, the the league takes at times. I think too much credit on saying that concussions or an overall the overall the game is safer because they've they've gone with a zero sum approach of punishing players for head to head contact. I mean, I don't believe that's why our game has has become safer. Well, do you believe at all that the game has become safer? There I do. Have been, there have been questioning of the statistics that the uh, league has put forward. Um, I, I do because um, and, and that's probably for another for another discussion after this, but on the question of accountability, 
if you're going to take great glee at punishing players for head-to-head contacts, and if you were going to say that that's resulted in the game being safer, then it's going to be very hard for the National Football League to say that they shouldn't fine or punish medical personnel or the teams in a case like uh, like the Keenum case, right? Right. So, you know, my, my first frame is, well, if you're going to <laughs> – uh, embrace the fine schedule as the way to achieve a safer game, then it's going to be very hard for the commissioner not to embrace some sort of fine uh, on the team if indeed that there was a failure of the team personnel. Or a fine of the commissioner? Well, I, I don't. Um, I, I mean, mean if, you can if, afford it. Well, and, and if you're making $44 million, you gotta, you got to wonder what kind of fine uh, uh, that would look like. Yeah. Um, as I'm fond of saying, you know, I'm, I, I do the job for much less. Um, but, you know, to your larger question of do I think the game has become safer? I, I do. Um, and, and to me, that's not so much a question of only are there decreases in the number of injuries. Um, I do think that now that we are in a system that does employ standard protocols for when we think a player is injured, I do think that that is a framework that has made the game safer. Mm. Um, Different question. Do I believe the game is safe? No. I mean, you can't say that this is a safe um, occupation, Um, not when you have a 100% injury rate. So to me, the goal here is not so much to live in this world of whether it's a safe occupation or, or an unsafe occupation. The real question is, given the occupational risk that come to our workers, are you engaged in processes to make that occupation less dangerous? And I think the answer is yes. What happened with Case Keenum in this yep. discussion also happens as this movie Concussion is about to hit the theaters. I found a disease that no one has ever seen. Repetitive head trauma chokes the brain. The NFL does not want to talk to you. You turned on the lights and gave their biggest boogeyman a name. You're going to war with a corporation that owns a day of the week. No proof was presented today because there simply isn't any. They have to listen to us. This is bigger than they are. Have you seen the movie? I have not, but I spoke to... um, Dr. Amalu a couple of times since the movie has come out. He's Will in town. Smith plays Dr. Amalu in the film. Uh, Bennett was the first neurophysician that I invited to be on our concussion committee. And I was thrilled to learn that one of the scenes in the movie, I guess, is Dr. Amalu walking into the, the breakers uh, into a, sort of a recreation of him coming to our players meeting back in 2010. Um, so I think that's awesome where movies like that, you know, whether whether it's Selma or, or any other movies who that that take the opportunity to take a historical event and make it into a, a medium that's enjoyable. Look, the reality is for a whole generation of people, this is going to introduce the story about what happened. Right. And I think that anything that serves that purpose is, is to be commended. You probably know the league is mounting a PR counteroffensive to the film. Yeah, and so. I think that's a mistake. I, to be dead honest with you, I, look, I, for a, a guy that came into this job in 2009, I was on the Hill within months yeah. of, of, of being elected to the job, which – um, all pleasant memories. Um, but I, I think the league would be better off embracing 
the truth about what happened, setting a, a, a pinpoint in history about what actually occurred, but then focusing on everything we've been able to do through collective bargaining to make the game safer. Right. It seems to me that any effort to mount a PR counteroffensive is A, going to look like a counteroffensive, and worse yet, make it look like you don't believe it's true. Mm. And my problem with that is, I mean, unfortunately, I was there. I was there when the head of their concussion committee was a rheumatologist. Right. I, I remember sitting in this office going through stacks of documents, the letters that the league wrote to try to prevent Dr. Omalu's studies from being published. I talked to our legal team about fighting for Ben Utech so he could get the benefit of a, a new neurocognitive benefit um, that the league opposed. Mm -hmm. So, look, all of these things are real. And it just seems to me that if the league truly wants to move forward, you have to be willing to allow the facts to rest comfortably in the past. Mm -hmm. And if you're unwilling to do that, the only thing you're doing is reinforcing with a number of fans and a number of parents concerns about your integrity. And this gets to a big picture question that I want to ask you because you have two jobs. Yeah. Um, protecting health and safety of the players yep. and also protecting the fact that players only play on average three and a half years and make big salaries. So yeah. you have to protect their wage earning potential at the same right. time. And I'm sure you've heard it before that the more people know about brain science, the more people know about concussions, that it actually imperils the economic future of the sport. So how do you balance both of those things, like preserving the economic future of the sport while also promoting science that could hurt the economic future of the sport, even if it protects the health of the right. players? Yeah, I don't really see them as binary because I think the only way to look at this is this is the occupation that a number of, of men have chosen. And the question then becomes um, not a choice between do you support the science that could end the occupation or do you ignore the science to further their careers? I, I just don't see it that way. It seems to me that the right way to look at this is to look at my job and, and, the, and the role of this union in the same way that a coal mining union might look at that profession or loggers who statistically have the most dangerous job in America, how do you protect loggers who have chosen that profession? You don't come out and you say, okay, let's ban cutting trees, right? Mm. I mean, what you try to do is how do we take the occupation, try to make it as safe as possible? Mm -hmm. But I think that also means not putting blinders on to reject science or information that could be threatening. The goal mm. is to embrace it. Mm -hmm. For example, I think that all of our players should know what the risks are. I think all every parent should know what the risk is. And then if there is a way to balance that risk or do things to make the game, I'm sorry, make the occupation safer, that's what you, you do. I think the only, I think the real risk is looking at it as binary and then you're, you, you get pushed into this, what I believe is a false choice of, well, you can't do that, uh, and I hear this often, you can't do that, D, because if you do that, you're going to kill the sport. Well, 
it didn't kill the sport when we made changes in the 30s and the 40s. It didn't change the sport when we put face guards. It didn't change the sport when we outlawed clothesline tackling. It didn't end the sport when we decided we weren't going to play 18 games. Mm -hmm. I think that this is a necessary engagement because that's the only way that you can ask hard questions. I mean, for example, no one has really come out and asked the question, should we be playing less games? I mean, everybody has this thing about, well, okay, 18 games. Look, 18 games was ridiculous, mm-hmm. um, uh, especially under the framework that the league proposed. When I engage our Mackie White committee, I engage it as a very raw, unstructured opportunity to ask hard questions. So if you pose the question of— It's the Mackey White Committee. I know that's so, for John Mackey— And uh, Reggie White. And Reggie White. So in 2010— so, Two Hall of Famers who have, uh, who have died, correct. to be clear. Uh, 2010, when we started going through— when I started going through a real um, analysis of, of CTE, and, and I just started off by reading uh, Dr. Amaldu's studies. I mean, I, mm-hmm. you know, I like to read everything— we didn't have a NFL committee on concussions that I felt was fairly and aggressively tackling the issue of concussions. I mean, after all, at the time, the head of that committee was Dr. Pellman, who had tried to block Dr. Amalu's studies. So I, I don't have a lot of faith in whether the NFL's committee was truly committed to keeping our players safe. So thanks to the continued lobbying of one of our former players, a guy named Sean Morey, Sean convinced me that we needed to set up our own committee where we invited the the best neurophysicians in the world. And the idea was twofold. One, what do we need to do in order to look at this issue fairly um, with an unbridled view to keeping our players safe, number one? And two, then how do we take that information and advise me and our executive committee of what changes we need to make with the CBA? Mm-hmm. And every year well, we meet, the first time we met was at the Breakers, um, which is where that scene from the movie comes. And simply, I have those people there to do one thing. What should we be doing to, right. to make this occupation safer. So, you know, out of that came the idea of mandatory concussion protocols. Out of that committee came the idea of um, neutral sideline concussion experts. Um, they were the ones who made the recommendations on things like uh, eliminating two-a-day practices during mm-hmm. the offseason. So, you know, the real heroes to me about how you know, the changes in the league on, on concussions uh, have been the people who've been on the Mackey White Committee. And, right. and, and one of the reasons that very few people have heard about it is everything that happens in that committee happens behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you, are there some NFL doctors that are a part of that committee? Yes. But the reason why I like them there is I give them the absolute confidence that speak your mind. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned uh, coal mining and logging before. Right. And I've always been of the position of, like, in a perfect world, 
there would not be coal mining or logging, but as long as there has to be coal mining and logging, you want the working conditions sure. to be as safe as possible for the people who have to do that incredibly dangerous work. Sure. You want them to have the best health care, the best unions, everything. The best equipment. The best equipment. In the NFL, that's always also been my position. As long as people are doing this work, they have to have the strongest possible unions because it is that dangerous. Sure. Which leads to two questions. Mm -hmm. The first is, in a perfect world, would there be tackle football? Would we have this sport where people bang their heads against each other for our collective entertainment? And I'm putting myself there, too, because I know where I am on Sunday. Well, ask a slightly different question. In the perfect world, could there be tackle football that is that is as safe as possible. Yes, I think that's true. I mean, I, I, you know, one other occupation we, we don't talk about, you know, nurses are, are among the, the group of people that face the greatest risk. I mean, right. the reality is we're not going to be able to get rid of, uh, of nurses. So the goal is not so much, you know, in a perfect world, would we love to not have emergency rooms? Well, of sure. course we would. But the reality is we will have them, so we try to keep them as safe as possible. And that gets to the next question, too, because we want our football players to have the strongest possible union and have union protection. Well, I'm not sure everybody does. Well, I mean, you and I do. Yeah, we do. I'll say we in <laughs> the forces the, in of this good room, and all things that are right. In this room, um, yeah. we want the people who play the most popular sport in this country and the most popular league in this country to have the strongest possible union protections. The people who play in the second most popular sport in this country are college football players. Right. And they have no union protections. Right. Is there um, any effort by the NFLPA? Have you guys explored the idea of, at least in the big five conferences, of actually organizing these players so they can have a collective voice? Because right now yeah. it's like the Wild West. Uh, well, the NCAA. You, you know, if you want to, uh, the answer is yes. We, we You have discussed it in the NFLPA. About oh, organizing. we've been working with Ramogi Huma now right. for. Um, since I've been here. So, um, Mogi Huma, head of uh, Kappa. Kappa, the effort to organize college athletes. Right, connected um, to Northwestern, but it's only the, the ball has moved forward half a yard. Well, on this. I guess it, it's how you look. One, if, if you take a look at what Ramogi and that organization was able to do in California with respect to public universities who take state funds, he was able to successfully lobby the state legislature, and they have a uh, a medical care act that mandates medical care for any college athlete who gets hurt playing an intercollegiate sport, which, frankly, Mm -hmm. doesn't exist anywhere else. I mean, that's that's a huge win. On the global effort to unionize, obviously, the Northwestern case was a, a legal setback for them, but we've taken the view that that this is something that that merits our support. And so we continue to do it. But before I answer your question, I mean, if anybody ever has a doubt about the necessity of organized labor, look at what's happened on the health and safety of pro football and what hasn't happened in the health and safety of college football. Now, I would argue that our college system is just as professional as our our professional system. The only difference between the two systems is one group has a union and one group doesn't. And yeah, I mean, I, I get, you know, every person that loves college football and loves to opine at me normally at an airport bar about what, you know, what I don't know about football and how I'm killing the game. 
but and they use college football as an example of the game in a purer form oh just the whole you know no we can't have unions in college football because it would just ruin the game well i mean i doubt it's going to ruin your comfortable couch experience yeah i think the only thing it would probably change is college players who get busted up would have health care and college players who are spending, you know, literally hundreds of hours a month at the athletic facility would probably not live below the poverty line. Yeah. Now, I'm sure that those two things wouldn't ruin my viewing experience at home. But, but those are the things that I, you know, anyway, as you can tell, it's something that I do get a little wound up about. Missouri. The pl- what was your reaction when you heard that the players were actually exercising their labor power to go on strike against racism and with the very serious demand of having the college president step down, Tim Wolf, and then he did so within 36 hours of their yeah. in- stated intention? What, w- what was your reaction to that? I mean, a myriad of thoughts. I mean, yeah. you know, first and foremost, it's a group of employees who decided to use their collective labor power to engage their employer in a conversation. But they're student-athletes. I don't understand. I, I you know, <laughs> clearly uh, they didn't get the memo yeah. from Mark Emert. I'm sure it was on the way. But, you know, first and foremost, that's why I think that that's such a great and powerful thing. My next thought was, imagine whether the story at Northwestern would have been different if their college coach had had the same moral courage as the Missouri coach, Mm. right? Because once again, the Northwestern players wanted to use their collective power to engage their university in a conversation. In the Northwestern case, that was an abomination that had alumni and people threatening football players In Missouri, it was embraced. Now, I can make the argument that the reason why it was more, quote-unquote, acceptable for the Missouri players to do it because they chose to tackle an issue of racism, it wasn't acceptable to many people in Northwestern because the players wanted to have a conversation about wages, hours, and working conditions. It's the same conversation. It's just a group of people making a moral choice about one is an acceptable thing to engage and the second is is not. Now, of course, there's a group of people who believe that the Missouri players shouldn't have been able to even have a conversation about racism. I mean, I, I think that's great if you, you know, were a part of the antebellum South. But I, I think that it makes absolutely no sense, uh, and I find it dubious that someone would really stand up and say you as a man aren't entitled to have a conversation with another man about something you find important. I mean, I I just think that's utterly ridiculous. And, and I've seen the comments of, you know, the people that came out, you know, against the, the Missouri players. I really, is that what the position is? The position is that a group of men can't have a conversation with their school about something that's important to them. That's that's ridiculous. In, um, in, in the land of hypotheticals, 
I'm sure you saw the the horrific le- release of the videotape um, in Chicago, the killing of Laquan McDonald, um, that tape that had been sat on in Chicago for 300 days. If hypothetically, say, the Chicago Bears said, like, we don't want to come out and play this Sunday or we're not going to come out of the locker room in the second half until a statement is read or whatever, yeah. does the union then have to have their back if they decide collectively I mean, I to do that? I support our players. You know, right. and, and, and to me, I mean, look, I, we, would, we would probably have an interesting discussion about whether they should come out for the second half, I mean, um, or whether they should play. I think that would be a... Um, that would be a discussion because I think the, the question there is, is, is like anything else, what are your goals? What do you want to accomplish? How do you want to get there? And, and then it's a discussion of what's the best method. And is everybody fully aware of the consequences? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, you, you know, our, our history, um, you know, recent history, you know, the 50s are recent history, right? You, you talk about the, the children's crusade. I mean, the decisions about the Children's Crusade was what? That a group of high school students all across a city were not going to go to school and subject themselves to arrest that would create a permanent arrest record for all of them. And they chose to do it. I mean, people may disagree about whether students should be engaged in in, in mass social unrest, but... When you read about that history, everybody went into it with a sober understanding that all of these kids were going to get arrested at best, probably beaten um, and, and incarcerated for long periods of time at worst, and yet they continue to do it. So, you know, I look at that, and, and to answer your question, would we then have a conversation with a group of professional athletes who are, who are adults about the consequences of their actions and, 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 and real conversations about whether they should do it? Well, of course. So, you know, I took offense a few years ago when I got a letter from uh, another union leader of, of the, the Fraternal Order of Police in St. Louis who wrote to Roger Goodell asking Roger to punish the Rams players who came out of the tunnel with their hands up. Well, right. wait a minute. As Ferguson was burning for right. goodness sake. So a, I, just reframe it. A group of players who did the right thing about being socially aware, because all you hear is, oh, these players are just prima donnas. They live in their own world. Well, no. A group of our players were socially conscious of their own community and didn't cancel the game, didn't refuse to play. They simply came out of the tunnel and instead of whether they salute or carry a flag or do some other right. gesture, they, they came out and put their hands up. And, and frankly, I think that one union official asking management to punish other union members is a guy who's forgotten what his real job is. I'll tell you something. Um, I was surprised, and I'm curious if you were, I was surprised last year as the Black Lives Matter movement exploded onto consciousness, and you saw what happened in St. Louis, you saw Andrew Hawkins with the Browns writing right. a statement on his uniform, Kenny Britt wrote My Children's Lives Matter on his, on his raps. I was very surprised that those players were not fined. I mean, this is a league that famously finds everybody for, finds people for having the wrong shoelaces or, or whatnot. Were you 
surprised that Goodell and the league did not take action against these players? No. And did you have any role in the league not taking action against these players? Can I choose to answer one question but not the other? You can answer whatever <laughs> you like. Uh, surprised, <laughs> no. No answer on whether we had a role. Got you. Okay. Okay, so jumping from that, that's very interesting. Jumping from that, I wanted to ask you about Greg Hardy. Yeah. And I, first of all, did you see the photos that were released? And um, yeah, and yes, sorry. Very, very sobering to see those photos. Sure. And how do you defend people that maybe personally you would not want to defend? Um, you know, I I I think you know as a lawyer, um, you know, I was both a prosecutor and a defense lawyer. Um, one, you, every person is, at least in our country, entitled um, to, uh, in the legal paradigm, a, a defense. In the broader union paradigm, every union member is deserving of the defense of his union within that paradigm. Are there ever people in your office who say, and I'm not asking about Greg Hardy in particular, sure. like I need to recuse myself from being a part of this particular defense strategy because I'm so um, upset about what this person's accused of? Um, they probably couldn't work here yeah. after that because I, I think that um, the job of a, a – a, it would be to me, again, you know, re, re, I'm a big fan of Gedanken experiments. You know, you, you, you create a new paradigm that teases out the same issues. If, if you were the head of the public defender service and you employed 50 lawyers mm -hmm. and one day 20 lawyers said, hey, there's just a particular class of cases that I, I just feel that people aren't, aren't worthy of a defense, what would you do? Well, you'd I think you'd have to fire those guys, right? right. Um, so it, it's the same thing with a union. We, we aren't defending any of these players in the criminal paradigm. Our job as a union is to defend and represent them within the collective bargaining. And I don't have any problem with that. Um, I mean, look, does it mean that at, at times – it's the job of a union leader to sometimes explain to its members or explain to its employees what our true duty is. A union job is one of the toughest jobs on the planet. And it's tough in situations like that because you have to set aside the particular circumstances and view this individual for what he is in your paradigm. He is a union member who is subject to a collective bargaining agreement. That means sometimes you have players who may themselves come from abusive homes and they say to you, how do you do it? You're my union too. How can you do this? Sure. And, and I had, you know, without going into great detail, a lot of discussions with some of our members who wondered why we were doing it. And I think the good news is after you explain it, um, our players understand. I mean, look, this is a union that fought for Michael Vick's bonus to the Eighth Circuit. None of us here are pro-dogfighting. You know, whether it was, it was Ray Rice or, or Adrian Peterson, none of us are pro-wife beaters. None of us are pro-child abusers. And I think, you know, some of the common sanctimonious commentary that seemed to suggest that um, is is just that. It's just sanctimonious. No. Now, 
I, I also I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you while we were here. Yeah. Is let's be very frank about this. Uh, Roger Goodell and the lawyers hired by the NFL have gotten their butt kicked up and down the court system of this country, whether we're talking about the cases you've mentioned, but really most centrally with the Brady case, which I think had a lot of people scratching their heads. Uh, You and I have talked about it before, about why the league was and is continuing, it looks like, to go to the mattresses on this case. What is the current state of relations between the NFLPA and the NFL, and do you wish they would just drop this appeal on the Brady case? Um, uh, the last question first. Yeah, it, it, it's irrelevant about what you know. I hope for this is a union uh, that that you know. You go outside on our door and, and you see that picture of Bill Radovich. Half the people on our wall are are law cases that we fought literally to the death with the National Football League. So, I mean, Brady wasn't the first and he won't be the last. He's probably the most... The weirdest? uh, um, Certainly the most high profile. And and I think one of the real issues that came out of of the Tom Brady case was, I mean, look, we'd been through hundreds of cases before, but I think when you have a a public figure like that, it laid bare to the general public, a lot of the issues that we've been dealing with with the league for a long period of time, where you just scratch your head and and wonder why we're doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, With respect to the relations, they are what they are. Um, I I know people have always liked to drop that, that frame of why... Why isn't the relationship between this guy and uh, between the commissioner and Roger and D not like... Not like Paul and Gene. Well, you know, I've always said I'm not, I'm not Gene, and he's not Paul. Um, and and that's not, that's not saying one is better than the other. It's just saying we are where we are. Um, our our job as a union is almost ninety nine percent of the time responsive. Mm-hmm. Um, we're always reacting to what the league does. Now, do we get after our business? Yes. Um, and and I demand a lot out of our team, out of our lawyers, out of myself. Um, and, and if we decide that we're in a fight, I mean, everybody, everybody should pack a lunch. Does that mean that that's the way it always has to be? You know, I hope not, because I do think that it inhibits conversations that we need to have. It inhibits, I think, a productive conversation about whether the players will invest in a stadium in Los Angeles. Um, I think it inhibits uh, real conversations on global change on healthcare. It makes it tougher for us to um, reach a consensus on issues like uh, workers' compensation. Um, does it have a polarizing effect? Yes. Do I try to make sure that it doesn't? Yes. But the reality is I work for the executive committee and our board of player reps. And when they view the world probably a little bit more binary than it than it actually is, but you know, let's be real. Their frame is always, what are we doing and, and, and are we going to win the latest fight? Mm-hmm. So, uh, <laughs> I got, yeah. So I think it's, the phrase is Pax Romana. Yeah. And, and is look. Is that how you feel like things that, are at this th- point? That's or? where I think things can be. It, it does seem to me that looking broadly over sort of arcs of history, you either have History is either defined when you're looking at empires or or, or, or uh, nation states, 
either periods of conflict or periods of peace, right? And and when there are periods of peace, that's when you see, you know, things like the Renaissance, or you see mm-hmm. things like um, the the rebirth of of artistic freedom and and really interesting things that occur because you have bandwidth to actually engage in them. I mean, the goal of a long uh, labor deal was to create a runway so that people who invest in our business will feel comfortable investing. And that's whether it's television revenue or um, mobile revenue or new things on on the forefront of, mm-hmm. of, of technology and, and ways to interface our game. Well, you have a bandwidth and a runway to do those things if you're not fighting a CBA every every four years. My hope is that that's where we can get to because I do think that there are some very interesting things that we can do to make the game um, better for our fans and and make the business better for our partners. Would love a comment from you about the thought of a future LA team. I know no one's talking expansion. They're talking a team actually leaving a community, which always causes uh, heartache and pain. What are your thoughts about the viability of the NFL in LA? Yeah, I mean... uh Again, back to the job, we share revenue with the National Football League. So my, my question is always, are we in underperforming markets uh, that are problematic, that need to move, and are there markets where we should be? And mm-hmm. I think when it comes to L.A., uh, I think a case can be made that that is a market where we should be and should have been for a decade so, you know, to me, um, our players uh, are, are rightfully entitled to their, their share of revenue. We take the issue very seriously if we believe that the NFL isn't honoring its obligation to maximize that revenue. Executive Director of the NFLPA, but you're also you know, a labor leader in the United yeah. States, part of the AFL-CIO. And I really would be remiss before we finished if I didn't ask you about just your take on the mood in this country right now, mm. which is... You know, which is for me just very disturbing. Like it's whether not you're good. whether you're talking about the rejection of of Syrian immigrants, uh, whether you're talking about the shooting at the Planned Parenthood, whether you're talking about some of the crowds at these Trump rallies, it, it, it's it's highly concerning in terms of what's happening out there. And I would love to know your thoughts about the current political moment and what you think needs yeah. to be done to to heal. Um. Yeah, well, I mean, if you want my opinion on what needs to be done to heal it is a collective expression that we can all do better, that we can appeal to the, the, uh, our higher nature. And here's the good news. I actually believe that the core of this country isn't as mean, angry, and narrow-minded as is articulated in our media. I, I mean, I, I just have to believe that that's true. You know, the, the people that, that you know, um, the people that I know, I truly believe aren't different than, than us. I mean, you and I met outside. Our first conversation was, sure. how are kids? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I don't think that, that people in America, for the most part, are, are much different than that. I do think that... Um, the way in which expression is manifested today and, and the way that, that certain groups are able to hijack messages 
are much easier today than than before. I mean, this weird thing happened with Twitter and the internet. The, the goal was that you would open up communication to a larger group of people. Yes, that's true. The result is it's just now being manipulated by a smaller group of people, right? And, and so my hope is that the smaller group of people who are manipulating the media aren't reflective of, of what's truly the core of America. D. Smith, thanks for joining us. And thank you, my friend. Always a pleasure. And now the first film review in the history of the Edge of Sports podcast, and it won't be the last because I'm seeing a sneak preview of the concussion movie next week. But this week, I saw the new Rocky film, Creed, and you can read my review at thenation.com, and we'll have the link for it in the description of this podcast. This week's column is called How Creed Saves Rocky from Himself. So I had two gnawing fears when the latest Rocky film, otherwise known as Creed, hit the theaters. These anxieties were rooted in knowing only the basic premise. Sylvester Stallone's Rocky Balboa trains the late Apollo Creed's troubled son, Adonis Donnie Johnson, played by Michael B. Jordan. My first and greatest fear is that this would be a white savior film. Think different strokes with more punching with Sylvester Stallone in the role of Mr. Drummond. Rocky would rescue Adonis and be the great white father the troubled but gifted young black man always needed yet never had. Now that's not by definition a recipe for a bad film, but it's tired. And Caucasian self-congratulation for black success, especially in sports movies, has already occupied enough reels for one century. My second fear was that Stallone, years since he did anything decent, would deliver the kind of campy performance only John Waters could love. If Stallone was willing to spend decades in front of the camera as a caricature and make millions, good for him. But that's not the way I wanted to see Rocky go out. Neither of these fears blessedly came to pass. Before writing about why those concerns were pummeled like some hurting bombs to the kidneys, I must confess to being a lifelong Rocky fanboy. I entered Creed having seen all six of the Rocky films a disturbing number of times, memorizing the lines, the fight sequences, and even, God help me, the lyrics to In the Burning Heart by Survivor. As a teenager, I even won a radio contest by watching the first five Rockies in a row without leaving the theater to go to the bathroom. My prize, a fake gold chain with a boxing glove on the end that turned my neck green. Despite the mint hue around my clavicle, I never took off that necklace until it disintegrated into dust. I loved them all. I loved the 1976 Oscar-winning Rocky, which is really a gritty indie film down to its anti-Hollywood finish. I loved Rocky too, with the chasing chicken, sappy ending, and yo, Adrian, I did it, which never fails to make me blink away the tears. I loved the utterly 1980s, flagrantly offensive Rocky III, where Balboa learns how to fight with rhythm, or in the words of brother-in-law Paulie, like, quote, a colored fighter, end quote, with the help of former nemesis turned blood brother Apollo Creed and defeats Mr. T playing a racial caricature out of a Jesse Helms campaign ad. I loved Rocky IV, which is effectively three music videos, a lot of Dolph Lundgren, and all soaked in writer-director Stallone's red, white, and blue andro-infused Cold War ejaculate. I even wrote a self-righteous defense of what is universally regarded as the worst of the Rockies, Rocky V, which most fans of this franchise pretend never existed. The most recent flick in the canon, Rocky Balboa, has a couple of classic speeches and a final shot of Rocky waving goodbye, but a lot of us thought this was done. To revive this franchise seemed as logical as, to paraphrase Dr. Harry Edwards, giving CPR to a corpse. 
The main reason Rocky felt over is that the underlying premise of the series seemed achingly dated. A fictional great white hope who dominates boxing, shuts up the loudmouth cocky black fighters while also winning their respect. At its worst, this franchise was Skinamax for the white male sports fan. In the era of Ava DuVernay, the director of Selma, the time for Rocky films had surely passed. Fortunately, Creed is not a Rocky film. It's a Ryan Coogler film. Coogler directed and Michael B. Jordan starred in my favorite movie of 2013, Fruitvale Station. Just as Coogler took the tragic and iconic story of the police killing of Oscar Grant and infused it with the beats of everyday life, he does the same with Creed. It's the little moments. It's Jordan's Donnie Johnson learning Philly slang with the terrific Tessa Thompson over cheesesteaks. It's that 50,000-watt Michael B. Jordan smile that breaks out when you least expect it and shatters the screen. Being a Coogler film more than a Rocky film is without question what saves Creed from being a white savior movie and shows the value when conscious black directors and writers get to tell their own stories. It's the best repudiation of Matt Damon's instantly infamous statement on Project Greenlight that diversity matters only in front of the camera. Jordan's Adonis Johnson is not saved by Rocky. He's saved first and foremost by Apollo's widow as an orphan in a Los Angeles youth prison. It's a selfless act, taking in another woman's child out of love for her late husband. Adonis then saves himself from a future in the criminal justice grinder by leveraging his new wealth to get an education and a job. He has options, but chooses to box. When Donnie makes his way to Philadelphia and approaches Rocky, he's not begging to be saved. He's asking to be coached. He's asking Rocky to pay a debt owed to his family and be the unk, short for uncle, that Apollo would have wanted him to be. Rocky doesn't become Donnie's savior. Rocky becomes family. This is a Rocky movie as translated through the lens of Black Lives Matter consciousness and shows how black agency can become a force of collective deliverance. It makes Creed one of the more hopeful films about what divides and unites us in recent memory. It makes Creed essential viewing even for someone who knows nothing about Rocky Balboa or even boxing. But make no mistake about it, for the diehard fans, Michael B. Jordan is astonishing as a boxer. His first fight, filmed without cuts, is a testament to his training and is more athletically credible than anything this franchise has ever put on screen. Coogler is also savvy enough to put Rocky callbacks to the previous films to satisfy the hardcore fans. I will not spoil any of them, but suffice it to say, when the classic music finally kicks in toward the end, it feels earned. As for Stallone, the old man nails it. His wry melancholy, which comes off him in waves, is at times overwhelming. Whether it's Rocky's quiet brief when talking about his lost love, Adrian, or Stallone's obvious pain when holding up a photo of his real-life son, Sage, who played Rocky's son in Rocky V and died in 2012, you feel his quiet pain. People are saying this should be Stallone's Oscar. I don't care about all that. All I know is when the film ended, I didn't want to give him an Oscar. I wanted to give him a hug. Stallone's Rocky is family, and you don't turn your back on family. Coogler didn't turn away from Rocky, but he also didn't turn away from his own unique cinematic vision. As a result, we have a franchise reborn and a young director and actor announcing their intention to take the world by storm. Yo, Adrian, they did it. Now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award for an athlete who stands up and tries to use his platform to say something about the world. 
This week is a small gesture that I think had a big impact. Right now in the streets of Chicago, as I'm doing this, people are protesting because a 17-year-old named Laquan McDonald was killed in cold blood by police almost one year ago. Now, people have been protesting, people have been furious, people have been wanting to know why this tape was under wraps, why police doctored the tape, and why the family was paid off so they wouldn't say anything. I mean, it's an absolute mess, and it's shining a light on why Chicago is seen as the most corrupt police department in the United States. So the Just Stand Up Award actually goes to one of Chicago's own, uh, Dwayne Wade, who wrote on his sneakers, Justice for Laquan McDonald. It's a small gesture, but when you're out in the streets at 3 o'clock in the morning in the November cold, it's good to know who's on your side and who's not. That's Edge of Sports for this week. Make no mistake about it. We're on the side of the people in the streets, not the people behind the barricades. And we are here to bring you that intersection of sports and politics every single week. You can email me, Dave Zirin, at edgeofsports at slate.com or contact me on Twitter at edgeofsports. And I also want to invite everybody out there to look at our past shows. We're really proud of the work we've done so far. Listen to our interviews with Chuck D., John Legend, Georgia Tala from the NFLPA, and of course last week when we spoke to Baltimore Orioles Chief John Angelos and Baltimore-based MC Son of None. A big thank you to our guests this week, Damora Smith and Laram Prophet. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the show for free at iTunes or at Stitcher. You can listen at SoundCloud or at Panoply.fm. We are out of here. Peace. Thank you.